All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Hey, all right. Welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. And boy, have I got a fantastic episode for you this week. I am thrilled to have in the inshore offshore digital studio, Captain Debbie Hansen, host of ESPN's Real Talk Radio and one of South Florida's premier freshwater guides. Hey, and during today's bourbon break, I'll be taking a look at Wyoming Whiskey's Straight Bourbon Whiskey. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 hard baits for targeting tarpon. So yeah, we've got a great cast for you today. Hey, speaking of casts, I'm not sure why this just came to my mind, but you know, I'm a big Lee Marvin fan. And the other day, one of my boys and I were watching All Quiet on the Western Front, and we got to talking about war movies, which I love. And I asked him if he'd ever seen The Dirty Dozen, and we got to talking about what a great movie that is. But it reminded me that Lee Marvin was a fanatic offshore angler. The guy was incredibly dedicated to marlin fishing out of Hawaii and Australia. In fact, he once told a reporter, rather famously, now that he only made movies to finance his fishing. I remember seeing an article in an Australian newspaper or magazine about Marvin's obsession with giant marlin out of Cairns, where he fished every year, and he claimed that he spent the rest of the year just waiting to get back to Cairns. I also read once that he had caught more thousand pound plus marlin than just about any other angler ever. Now, I'm not sure how accurate that is, but there's a lot of evidence out there that sure shows he certainly caught a lot of granders. Now, I'm not sure why I'm talking about this today, but I guess it's because when I find myself being a fan of someone, like a movie star or a rock star, it only ups their credibility with me if they have a fishing connection, too, and Marvin certainly did. So speaking of Lee Marvin, you know, there's this great scene in Paint Your Wagon, which is a fantastic Western musical, when Horton Fenty, who is played by Tom Legon, tells Marvin's character, Ben Rumson, there's two kind of people in this world, them that's coming and them that's going. And Marvin's character looks at him and says, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Just a great delivery and a great scene. And speaking of not knowing what the hell I'm talking about, how about telling all your friends, family, co-workers, and arch rivals that they should be listening to the Rodcast. And you should also be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe or follow button on whatever platform through which you access the Rodcast. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing, Fishing Professor Rodcast. Let's get to casting. Okay, my listening crew, I am really excited to have Captain Debbie Hansen with us today on the Rodcast. Captain Hansen is not only a premier freshwater guide in Southwest Florida, she's also been the host of ESPN's Real Talk Radio since 2020. Now, Real Talk Radio has served the Southwest Florida fishing community since 2001 and has a reputation as one of the most engaging fishing radio shows out there. And having Captain Hansen at the helm of that show only enhances that great broadcast. And certainly the Florida Outdoor Writers Association thinks so, as they honored her with an award for her radio show episode, Embrace the Skunk, earlier this year. 
Captain Hansen is also an award-winning writer who's writing about fishing, has appeared in Florida Game and Fish Magazine, Boat USA Magazine, or excuse me, Boat US Magazine, USA Today, Hunt and Fish, and Gulf Shore Life Magazine. In addition, she's a regular contributor to the TakeMeFishing.org blog, and if you had the opportunity to listen to last week's episode, episode 1.26 of the Rodcast, which featured a conversation with Stephanie Vadalero, the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communication at Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation, which is the parent organization to Take Me Fishing, you would know how important the Take Me Fishing organization mission is. And I'm sure we'll be talking with Captain Hansen today about that as well. Captain Hansen has a reputation not just as a crackerjack guide, but as a vocal advocate for introducing people, particularly women and children, to recreational fishing and to educating people about fishing. And that has led her to appearing on television shows like Lunkerville, George Povaromo's World of Saltwater Fishing, and A Fishing Story with Ronnie Green. She has also been a speaker with the Saltwater Sportsman Seminar Series with George Povaromo and the Virginia Fly Fishing Festival. Captain Hansen is dedicated to introducing more women to recreational fishing, and her company, She Fishes Too, provides resources and tips for the empowered female angler. She also serves on the board of Fish Florida, a nonprofit organization which, which helps people, especially children, learn about fishing in Florida's environment. Fish Florida is funded through proceeds from the sale of the state's specialty sailfish auto license plate. And yes, that's the same license plate that adorns my truck. As angler educators go, Captain Hansen is one of the most dynamic, and I am thrilled to have her with us today. Captain Hansen, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Sid, thank you so much for the kind words and the introduction. I am so looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, we've been needing to do this for a while now. I mean, I think the last couple of times we've talked, we've been uh, sort of short, short shifted in time. So it's a good, good to be able to sit down with you and really talk through some stuff. Yes. Well, I know you're a busy guy and the past couple of years have definitely picked up a bit for me. So I'm glad we could finally connect here via this forum. That, yeah, I'm just really thrilled you're here. So let's let's start with some origin story stuff, sort of get some context. You're a lifelong angler, and you really connected with fishing at an early age on Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and then when you moved to Florida as a kid, that connection expanded. Could you tell us about those origins and how your early introductions to fishing initiated the passion you have for fishing in the outdoors? Absolutely. My grandfather was instrumental in introducing me to the outdoors. When I was five years old, he took me out in his aluminum fishing boat and we cruised and trolled on the waters of Stanley Lake and, and he would troll for muskie and for walleye. And then in the evenings, we would fish from the pier for panfish, for yellow perch, for bluegill, for crappie. So I've got just so many amazing memories of fishing with him when I was a little girl. And I loved the fact that both my brother and I would spend time with my grandfather up there on Stanley Lake in Michigan's UP. But my grandfather never questioned whether or not I should be out there on the water along with my brother. It was just, he took me. And from then moving forward, I was his best fishing buddy. And the interesting thing is my brother never really took to fishing. He actually gravitated more towards hunting and I gra gravitated to fishing. And honestly, those were just some of the most treasured memories that I have with my grandfather was fishing up there with him and just learning from him. He knew exactly 
which areas of the lake different fish species would be holding. He knew that the largemouth bass were going to be on the north end of the lake by the lily pads. He knew the walleye were going to be closer to the center of the lake near the weed beds. And I just remember being fascinated with how he knew where those species would be at any given time of year and season. And I love just the fact that I learned something new every time I went out there with him. So for years and years, when I had summers off of school and both my parents worked full time, that was my favorite place to be. I would spend the whole summer up there fishing with him and I loved every minute of it. So that ignited the passion for me. So given that then at what point and why did you decide to take that passion and make a career out of it? That's a great question, Sid. So I actually, I graduated from Western Illinois University with a degree in English and journalism. So I am actually applying my degree on the writing <laughs> side a little bit, but I, I got, I took a job in the online advertising industry. So I was doing online advertising sales. And it was a pretty intense position where we had a quota to meet every month. So regardless of what was going on with the economy or what might've been going on in the industry at that time, it was, it was intense. You needed to make your quota or you didn't really have that job security because you're only as good as the next account you secured. So both of my parents actually right around that same time were diagnosed with cancer. And it brought about a, an awakening within me. Obviously, I was very concerned for them and I wanted to have more flexibility to be able to be there for them if they needed me. But it also made me realize that life is just way too short and we're, it's not a dress rehearsal. We're only given one opportunity to make it count. And so I started a blog at the time it was called Bass Fisherwomen. <laughs> and I started it with a friend of mine and we just took turns blogging. And one of the young ladies who was working in marketing for Take Me Fishing at the time, her name was Elizabeth Bender. She ended up finding that blog and asked if I would be interested in submitting a proposal to blog for Take Me Fishing on a regular basis. So I submitted that proposal and one thing led to another and I secured a contract with them and then eventually was able to break away from my job and make the transition into the outdoor writing world. And then a few years later, I had a friend who was just very adamant about encouraging me to get my captain's license and to start guiding to supplement my income. And because I just was so passionate about fishing and getting friends out on the water. So I did that. And then a couple of years ago, the radio hosting opportunity came my way, thanks to Captain Rob Modis. So just everything sort of sort of fell into place. But I just have to say that I'm so glad I took that leap. It was really pretty nerve wracking at first to go from having a secure paycheck and, and knowing where your next paycheck was going to come from to, to making that leap. But I really have to thank everyone at Take Me Fishing for all the work that they do to support women and advocate for women. And I have to thank them for the opportunity that they gave to me because without that opportunity, I don't think I would have felt confident enough to make that break and to end up going on to do all the things that I did. So I have to thank Stephanie and her whole team. 
That's the fantastic origin story. And since you brought it up, and I wanted to talk about this today anyway, and I mentioned it in the brief introduction to this conversation, you are a very powerful advocate for introducing more women to recreational fishing, and your company, She Fishes Too, really focuses on that kind of empowerment. Could you talk a bit about your mission in bringing more women to the sport? Absolutely. Sid, you know, when I was growing up, I unfortunately didn't have a lot of female role models to look up to. So there weren't, there weren't young ladies like me that I saw there out there on the water. And so that really struck a chord with me. And I really wanted to do whatever I could to help support other women like me, young women, the next generation coming up so that they felt like they had somebody they could go to to ask questions. I think a lot of times when we we build a community, we feel a sense of comfort, a sense of support, you know, whether it's a neighborhood community, whether it's an online community, we can share ideas, you can support each other and it's no different with women in the fishing community. So that's one of the reasons why I started the blog initially is because I wanted women to feel like they had a place that they could go to find fishing information and tips that were being shared by a woman. And so that's remained sort of a focus of mine. And I, I love as a guide getting women out on the boat. I just think that we have a way of relating to each other. And as I mentioned, supporting each other, learning from each other. And when we come together in community, there's just, we, you know, we're better together. A friend of mine, Angie Scott, she has the Women Angler and Adventurer podcast. That's a quote she always uses. And, and I support her philosophy hundred percent. And I truly believe that. So I think it's just really important for, for young women to have a lot of role models out there. And I think it's really important that we encourage and support each other and that we create more opportunities in the outdoor industry for women and that they know that those opportunities are available to them. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. And it leads me to the next one, particularly given what you said right there toward the end. And I, you know, if you're talking about the industry, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts about how the recreational fishing industry has or has not embraced this mantle of supporting more women in fishing. And in particular, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about what some of the more difficult hurdles are in the industry or even in the culture of fishing that tend to slow or impede women from taking, uh, taking up fishing. Yeah, well, I think we're, we're making major strides and I really noticed it during ICAST this past year. It used to be 10 years ago when I attended a fishing trade show like ICAST. Maybe you would see a dozen other women who are actually walking the floor and not working a booth. Women who were truly involved in the industry, you know, and not just their temporarily to help with the booth or something along those lines. So I've seen a huge shift. And I do think that a lot of these strides have been made because this greater awareness has been created from organizations like Take Me Fishing and their Women Making Waves movement. People like Angie Scott from the Women Angler and Adventure. We're seeing more of ourselves out there and more women like us out there, which is kind of giving us permission to 
really chase our dreams and not be intimidated or deterred because there are fewer of us in, in numbers than, you know, there are men in the industry overall. Um, so I think we're making major strides. And I also think just there are so many professional tournament anglers, women such as Christine Fisher, who are really shattering the bass ceiling, so to speak, by putting their money where their mouth is. And they know the technical, the technical aspects of the sport. They're getting out there, they're winning tournaments, and they're really making names for themselves, you know, as well as a lot of the female guides that we're seeing up and coming now. So I think a lot of it is just really the fact that there are a lot of very highly credible women that are out there, which is really helping things. And I think a lot of the hurdles maybe in the past just had to do with just maybe women not feeling like there was a safe space for them to come together or not feeling as if they were going to be supported. But I think that, like I said, we're making huge strides there definitely within the past five years, some major strides. And I have to give major credit to the fishing industry, people like George Poveromo, who are bringing a lot of women on to do seminar series, bringing more women on to do TV shows and showcasing their abilities and their skills, which is really what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree completely with what you've said about ICAST this year. You know, it's great to see people like Misty Wells out there, um, you know, really doing a lot of angler education for women and really encouraging. And I'm blanking on Betty's last name. I know you know Betty. Um, Betty Bowman. Betty Bowman. Thank you. Yes. You know, the work she's doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are some there are some women out there doing some incredible advocacy work in these lines. And so I think this is really, really important stuff. So let me shift it a little bit, but stay along those lines, because a lot of your writing about fishing is probably best described as instructional. That is, you teach a lot in your writing and you offer pragmatic tips for readers. And one of the venues through which you do this, as I noted before, is the TakeMeFishing.org blog. Could you talk a bit about your philosophy about using your writing to teach others to fish and specifically why the TakeMeFishing.org blogs and articles have become such a fantastic resource for anglers to learn about fishing? Yeah. So when it comes to my philosophy, again, I just think that especially I've noticed over the past two or three years, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was that there was just a, a thirst for knowledge. And now, of course, we have so many wonderful resources available to us if we want to learn anything new via YouTube, via blogs, via magazine articles. And so I think it's, there are a lot, there's a lot of information. And, and you, you know, if you think about the fact that that's one of the things that has attracted me to fishing is no matter how much you think, you know, you're never going to know it all. There's just way too much. And anyone who tells you they know everything about fishing is, is just, you know, completely full of malarkey because we all know as much as you think, you know, there's always more to learn and that every day you go out there, you end up learning something new. And so that educational component of it, really resonated with me. 
And I didn't see a lot of, initially when I started writing and I started blogging, I didn't see a lot of women who are out there offering helpful information. But like I mentioned earlier, I thought it was important because there are women who are out there who are knowledgeable and educate, educated on different fishing related matters. And to see them share their knowledge, I think is, is pretty inspiring. There've been a lot of women who have inspired me like, um, Badass Outdoors, and uh, there's there's just there's so many women. If I think of April Vokey and yes Betty Bowman, the number of women that she has educated through her seminar series. So that's one of the reasons why writing really resonated with me. I just think that there's so much you can always learn, and whenever I'm researching an article, I always learn so much through people that I interview and through the writing process. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy it. So hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you completely. I mean, I think, and you know, it's interesting because, you know, we mentioned, or you mentioned the increase in numbers of women fishing, particularly over the last two years uh, throughout the pandemic. You know, if we look at the data, we look at the numbers, one of the fastest growing populations in recreational fishing not just women, but single moms who during the pandemic needed an outlet for uh, having their children engage in activities rather than just sitting at home playing video games. And that led to the need for the desire for those kinds of introductory, pragmatic teaching content where they were learning. And so I, you know, I think that we're seeing you know, two really important trends happening. One is more women, more moms coming into recreational fishing, which has led to more of us writing the basic stuff. I think a lot of us who've been in the media for a long time just assume everybody already knows, you know, what a spinning rod is or, you know, how to tie a knot. And that's not the case anymore. Yeah, no, it's, it's, Definitely not the case anymore. And I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I definitely see that there have been just there's such an increase in the number of moms that are getting out there. And I even saw moms who are booking trips, charter trips with me to get out on the water with their young daughters. And they wanted to learn everything about the process of fishing from tying the knots to putting line on the fishing reel, to taking the fish off the hook. So to me, that was so exciting, just really made a huge impact. I think one of the biggest challenges we face, and Stephanie may have covered this in your conversation with her on your last podcast, but is just retention and keeping those women engaged in the sport. I think that, again, really building communities, hosting fishing meetups for women, having seminars by women for women, those are all really great ways of, of encouraging that feeling of community and helping those women feel supported and also hopefully keeping them engaged in the sport moving forward. Absolutely. I think one of the other interesting things that Stephanie said that you mentioned the word there was community. And one of the things we're hearing from a lot of women who are new to fishing is that they want to go fishing for that sense of community, for that sense of being with family, being with friends, being, and yet the tradition of male fishing has always been you go fishing to get away, to get away from the family, to get, you know, that solitude in a way. And so it's an interesting shift in the cultural dynamic of why are we going fishing? Are we going fishing to get away or are we going to, are we going fishing to create that sense of community? Right. And don't get me wrong. We want to catch fish too. Right. Oh, no (laughs) doubt. No doubt. But there's more (laughs) that comes with that. 
And, you know, one thought that I had kind of jumping back to the earlier part of our conversation, you had asked about hurdles. And one thing that I did want to touch on that I think is really important is just overcoming a lot of the stereotypes that we have in the fishing community and in the industry. A lot of times I think people intend to be helpful and there are a lot of positive stereotypes out there that we hear. And I've had some discussions with some of my female angler friends about this too over the past couple of months. People will say things like, well, women are more patient or women just have a gentler touch. And so women are better at fishing. And it's an interesting thought, but I think, you know, regardless of any of the stereotypes that we're putting out there, a stereotype is, is still a stereotype, right? And I think each and every person that's out there on the water may handle a situation differently. And so it's important to recognize the individual for their skills and for their abilities. And, and sure, yes, we want to build community and have supportive environments for women, environments that feel safe. But at the same time, I think that it's important that we're speaking to everyone in general when we're tailoring our marketing messages. We're not saying fisherman or, you know, when I go out with my wife, because now it could be the wife who's taking her husband out fishing. (laughs) And just being a little bit more mindful of maybe some of the stereotypes, both both positive and negative stereotypes that are out there. Well, since you said that, and I hadn't planned on bringing this up, but let's, let's, I want to ask you a stereotype question then, because the content that you produce and the content that a lot of the women that you've named uh, is designed to be educational, to be empowering, to encourage women to fish. But we're also seeing a trend, or at least I'm seeing, and, uh, you know, get very frustrated by it, I will admit this social media trend of the bikini clad woman holding the fish where there's nothing instructional. And it is actually kind of, from my perspective, promoting that negative stereotype of why women are out there. How, how given your role as, you know, a media person, how are you responding to seeing just these dozens and dozens of streams of just women in bikinis holding up fish? I think first of all, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to judge because we've all gone through phases in our life and, and I'm, I definitely handle things differently. I do personally because I really care about inspiring and encouraging the next generation. However, I know many women who are phenomenal anglers who are out there fishing in bikinis. So I think, again, it comes down to knowing that individual and and really knowing, hey, are they out there on the boat because they are really diehard about fishing and they happen to be wearing a bikini that day because they're offshore fishing and it was just, they didn't, you know, it, whatever the circumstances were in that situation. I mean, like I said, I know women who are really amazing anglers and they do fish in bikinis, but you know, for me personally, I, I, it's not the approach that I choose to take. And sometimes I do feel like that is overshadowed. Maybe they're a great, fantastic angler, but people are not really noticing that because they're focused on that image. So the other portion of it is 
if you're skilled and you're good at what you do, appearances really should be a mute point. It shouldn't matter. Right. Um, so it's, there's kind of a lot to unpack there. I think that's a really difficult question to answer, but I think if I were a parent, I know that I would, I would want to see my son or daughter looking up to positive role models. So that's the role model that I myself try to be and the values that I try to instill. I'm actually glad you answered that way, but for a different reason, because that was such a positive answer. And one of the things you're known for in the industry is your incredibly positive attitude. You're always so encouraging in your writing, in your videos. And I'm often taken by how you use that positive attitude to convey real insight about what we as anglers do. And I saw a post of yours recently in which you write, and this is a quote from you, real growth happens outside your comfort zone. You absorb so much more, pay attention to so much more, and are challenged so much more when the drive to make it happen through less than ideal conditions kick in. Unpack that for me. Explain how those less than ideal moments in our fishing help us learn more about our fishing. And I, I suppose also that it's a metaphoric le uh, life lesson as well also. So tell us about how those bad days of fishing make us better anglers. Well, uh, you, first I want to start off with the fact, and you brought up this point earlier, it, it is these days social media can be a little bit frustrating in the respect that what you're seeing is everybody's highlight reel. What you're seeing is everybody's great day out there and they're not always sharing. In fact, in most cases, they're not sharing the challenges. They're just sharing the triumphs. They're sharing the great days they had out there and you're not hearing about the tough days. So personally, I feel like it's really important, especially for the next generation to understand that you're not always going to have those good days. That's not fishing. There are going to be days you're going to go out there and the conditions are going to stink, but it might be the only day you have off school or the only day you have off work. And so you're going to go out there anyway. But the real, the point and the heart of the matter and getting to your question, it's what do you do with those challenges and how do you turn those challenges around into a positive? And I personally like to keep a short fishing log. I don't take extremely detailed notes like some friends that I know do, but I do take notes and I do log my trips and the days that I have a really tough day. The information that I glean from that is just as important as the days that I have that are really good. And if you go back and look at trends and you're trying to establish a pattern with a certain species or a certain time of year or a certain type of bait that you're using, a lot of times those tough days are sort of like your key or they're giving you a clue to information that's going to make you more successful later on down the line. And I think a lot of times we get complacent, right? We have our go-to baits, we have our go-to presentations. And because we've been successful with those presentations, with those baits, we have a really hard time breaking out of those comfort zones to try new things, to try a new technique because we don't want to fail. But again, and unless you get out there and you try new things, you're stagnant, you're not learning. And 
people are so afraid of, you know, it's like our egos that are so afraid of going out there and not being able to hold up that big fish for the camera or not getting the video footage. However, again, it's taking that challenging experience and noting it in your head and thinking about why it might've been challenging that day. Was there something different about the conditions? Was there something different about the, you know, the water clarity, the water temperature? What exactly was it? Was there, you know, was there a particular um, type of, you know, structure that was there previously that wasn't there anymore? Was there a storm that came in and blew out a sandbar? If you're, you know, I mean, there's just so many different things that you can learn from the challenging days if you really pay attention and and take note of it. And I think a lot of times people just get frustrated. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to mention it. They certainly don't want to show it on social media, but we're not portraying the authenticity and the reality of what fishing is in those cases. That's such a great answer. I love that. And I, it makes me want to start the, uh, I failed, I got skunked today. You know, you've got the one piece about why it's okay to, to be skunked also. Um, uh, I think it's just a great response, but I want to shift gears now. Okay. I've got you here on the show and you're committed to angler education. So I want to take advantage of you as a teacher and as a guide and get some pro guide tips, some how to's about targeting and catching fish. We just got a bunch of philosophy, background thinking context, so I'm going to ask some pro tip questions and bear with me as I need to do a little fishing professoring here for this next prompt. It's a little bit, a little bit longer. And I want to ask you about peacock bass. And this is a species you guide clients to regularly. And I will admit it's a species about which I've been fascinated since my grandfather used to talk about wanting to go to the Amazon to catch them. I've never caught a peacock bass. A little bit of background, peacock bass were introduced to South Florida lakes and canals back in 1984. And they're not considered an invasive species. They're a non-native species. And the reason that they're not considered an invasive species is because they were intentionally introduced to Florida's waters by way of Florida Wildlife Commission. The peacock bass of South Florida were imported from Brazil, Guyana, and Peru. And the stocks were spawned at FWC's non-native fish research lab. And according to the FWC, using the three stocks from Brazil, Guyana, and Peru, increased genetic variability and fish were stocked only after being tested by both the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Auburn University to ensure that they were disease and parasite free. Now, one of the reasons they were introduced too is that they help control overabundant exotic forage fish. They've also become a prized target species for, for anglers in South Florida. So with that in mind, tell us about fishing for peacock bass in Southwest Florida. What are the methods? What are the tackle? What I know you do a lot of fly fishing. What are the best fly patterns? Give us, how do I fish for peacock bass? Oh, you're going to make me give away all my secrets, aren't you, Sid? <laughs> Only if you choose to. You, you, just, <laughs> you, you just a moment ago told me that a lot of anglers are full of malarkey. So I figure as a pro angler, you're a pro liar too, right? <laughs> <laughs> never. I would never exaggerate or stretch the truth. <laughs> Isn't that part of being an angler, part of being a fisherwoman or a fisherman? Um, Yes. So peacock bass are one of my absolute favorite species to target. And that was some great background information. Thank you for that. 
I, I, one of the reasons I love targeting peacock bass here in Southwest Florida is just because of their aggressive nature this time of year. So say from, I would say late March all the way through November is really kind of like the ideal time here in Southwest Florida to target the species. Given the fact that they're native to the Amazon, the hotter, the more humid, the better, the more active they are. And I love chasing peacock bass on top water. So one of my favorite presentations, whether I've got like tackle spinning clients or fly clients is top water. Love top water. So for my fly fishing clients, we're using top water poppers in a lot of cases. And for my light tackle spinning clients, I like to use the Rebel Pop R, which is just, it's actually the teeny pop R, which is a, a very small um, popper that is just phenomenal. It works really, really well for peacock bass. And you know, the peacock bass really, from what I find in this area, they key in on smaller presentations. So something that's less than three inches. I have heard of people catching them on larger top waters, but for me, the smaller top waters, hands down, I get a lot more action and a lot more strikes on. Um, so basically what, what I'm looking for is here in Southwest Florida, the canal systems, I'm looking for riprap, I'm looking for rocks, I'm looking for culverts or canal bends. Peacock bass always gravitate to any areas where there's a lot of rocks because those rocks hold heat. So in the summer when those fish come up more shallow, working around those rocks and finding any of those limestone rocks is a key part of finding where those peacock bass are gonna be holding. Um, Fly fishing, we already talked about top water. I love using those top water poppers. One of my other favorite presentations is a muddler minnow variation. And I use one that was tied by a good friend of mine named Joe Mahler. He ties it in very bright yellow or chartreuse and orange. And just the, the it sits just below the surface of the water and that deer hair kind of floats a little bit and it makes a wake and the peacock just go crazy over that presentation on fly. So I'm using, when I'm fly fishing, I'm using a floating line, especially during the warmer months of the year, because again, those peacocks come up very shallow to prey on forage. So I'm using a floating fly line and I'm using a monofilament leader because of the fact that the monofilament is more buoyant. So it's going to stay higher in the water column, whereas fluorocarbon tends to sink. So I use a fluorocarbon leader if I'm fishing streamer patterns. But here for peacocks this time of year, top water and the muddler variation patterns that I use, I'm always using monofilament leader. Um, and same holds true for spinning gear. When I use the Rebel Pop Bars on my light tackle spinning gear, I'm using like eight pound braid and then I use 12 pound monofilament leader with those poppers and I make my leaders shorter. So I, I might use maybe like a foot, foot and a half of that monofilament leader because again, it, it's going to stay higher in the water column and it gives me better action on those poppers. Um, I also, you know, I mean, peacock bass will also take jigs. They'll take brightly colored crankbaits if you're fishing spinning gear. Um, really anything jerkbait, soft plastic jerkbaits are another fantastic presentation, especially if the fish are short striking on top waters. Usually those soft plastic jerk baits, if you work them really erratically, that's the key. The main thing, and I can't stress this enough, is if you're fishing those top waters, 
and you see that wake, you see that fish coming up behind your top water, do not break your cadence. A lot of times when you're fishing, and I know you've probably done this before too, Sid, you see a wake coming up behind that popper and you get excited and something happens and you break the cadence and the fish turns off and loses interest. So the main thing is if anything with those peas, they get fired up and they get even more aggressive if you speed up your cadence a little bit or maintain the same cadence. So that's really key in terms of getting those fish fired up and getting them to strike. Excellent. Great advice. So what's your personal best peacock bass? My personal best is six pounds. That's six a nice pounds. Fish. Yeah. I would love to get a seven or eight. I need to go over to the other coast to make that happen. What a lot of people don't realize is that our peacock bass fishery here in Southwest Florida is a little more sensitive. Our fish don't stay active as active on this coast during the winter months as they do over in Miami-Dade and Broward counties where they are originally stocked because of the fact that that coast has the benefit of the Biscayne Aquifer, which keeps all the lakes and canal systems over on that coast a pretty stable 72 to 75 degrees, even during the winter months, since we don't have the benefit of that aquifer here. When our water temperatures start to dip, those peacock bass really need to get down deep where the water temperature is more stable and they pretty much become inactive. It's not to say that you still can't catch them, but it takes a lot more work and you've got to come up with some different techniques that work in, in deeper water. And a lot of times it's just really tough to get them to bite. Uh, the other coast, that's that's not the case during the winter months. So it's also understanding the difference between the two fisheries and the best time of year to target them over here on this coast. Sounds a lot like the behavioral patterns of West Coast snook and redfish also in the winter coming up the creeks, going deep and getting very lethargic and not striking. So yeah, definitely. Yep. Sure. So you do a lot of largemouth bass fishing too. And a few years, a few years ago, you wrote a piece for Game and Fish magazine identifying your top bass fishing spots in Florida. Without recapping that whole article, what are your favorite bass fishing locations and locations in Florida? Oh, I'm going to give you two. And that my list has changed a little bit recently. And I'm I'm actually super excited because next week I'm I'm going up to fish with Sean Rush on Rodman Reservoir. And that is definitely one of the best places to, to target double digit bass and to have a shot at one. So Rodman is at the top of my list. Also Lake Ixtapoga, which is near Sebring. So those are two of, of my top largemouth bass fisheries. Obviously I don't guide on those particular waterways and I've had people say, oh, well, you know, you're a guide, why don't you just go up there and figure it out? But, you know, anyone who fishes on a regular basis knows that there's just no way that you can have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in, in a fishery, unless you're fishing it on a regular basis. So it's always best to, to hire a guide. And I put my money where my mouth is, you know, here, if I was fishing in Naples or Fort Myers, yes, I, I've got a good grasp on that because I'm doing that on a weekly basis. But for Rodman and for Lake Ixtapoga, I always would hire a guide because of the fact that those ladies and gents are out there every day and really focusing on the patterns of those fish and what they're doing at any given time. Well, when you get to Rodman, give a wave. I'm just down the road. Uh, I will. <laughs> All right. So given that about bass, let's get some bass tips here. 
First of all, yeah. tell us, and I know you've spoken about this before, but tell not today, but in other interviews, tell us a little bit about Florida bass and what makes the Florida largemouth different from largemouth bass everywhere else. Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite questions and such a great question, Sid, because I can't tell you how many times people will come down from the North during the winter months. They're down here for season. They're down on vacation. And they say to me, well, I can catch a bass up in Wisconsin or up in Illinois or up in New Jersey. What's the difference between me catching a bass up there and me catching a bass down here? But as you probably know, our Florida strain largemouth are very, very special. And our Florida strain largemouth, they are endemic to the Lake Wales Ridge. So when most of the state of Florida was actually covered by water following the ice age, the Lake Wales Ridge was a series of sand islands in the middle of the state. They were the only part of the state of Florida that was above water during that time. And as such, unique plant and animal forms developed on the, that series of chain islands. One of them is the Florida scrub jay. As one example, also the Florida strain largemouth bass. So the Florida strain largemouth is just a very special fish. They grow faster than northern strain largemouth. They grow larger and they're a separate subspecies. So they are different. And I know that anglers who have fished for the two different species, tournament anglers, people who are, have traveled, they will tell you about the different behavioral characteristics. Our Florida strain fish are much more sensitive, obviously, to cold temperatures. So when we have cold fronts come through down here, they can definitely develop lockjaw and it makes it much more challenging to catch them. But that has kind of been one of the fun experiments that, that I've really enjoyed over the past couple of years is, is experimenting with a lot of different the finesse fishing techniques on light tackle spinning gear and getting those fish to chew in some really challenging conditions. Because as a guide, you've got to go out there and be able to put your clients on fish through all conditions and situations. So yes, our Florida largemouth are very special to me. And I actually had the good fortune of going up to the Florida Bass Conservation Center in Webster, Florida, which if anyone has not been up there, I cannot recommend it enough. You can just go to FWC's website, type in Florida Bass Conservation Center, and some information will come up on it. You do need to call them in advance, but if you schedule a tour, you will learn so much about our Florida largemouth bass fisheries and how they stock the Florida strain largemouth bass and just all of the work that the biologists have done in terms of being able to keep the genetic integrity and maintain the genetic integrity of our Florida strain fish because people were starting to move northern strain fish down here and the genetic integrity of our Florida strain fish was becoming somewhat diluted. So it's really fascinating to me that FWC has a whole entire team of biologists and geneticists that's dedicated to maintaining the genetic integrity of our Florida strain fish. And that's, they're just, yeah, I mean, they're, they're amazing. And anyone who's caught a trophy Florida strain largemouth will testify to the fact that they're just super special. All right. So with that in mind, and given both your angler education mission and your work to bring new anglers into bass fishing or fishing in general, if you were talking with a group of new anglers who are considering taking up bass fishing in Florida, what would be the fundamental tackle components you'd advise them to have to get started as a bass angler? What lures, what terminal tackle, just the basics, 
What do I need to become a bass angler in Florida? You know what? I would keep it simple to start. I think honestly, I would start off with, you can't go wrong with a Senko, a six inch Senko and fishing with, I would say, depending on where you're fishing, it depends on the fishery. If you're fishing the center of the state and you're fishing a ton of thick, heavy cover, then you're probably going to need you know, some heavier lines, some heavier gear, but speaking from the, the perspective of say fishing down here in Southwest Florida, and that's how you're getting started, maybe in a local pond or in a local lake, which is where most young anglers are probably going to get started. Most beginners, you, you can use eight to 10 pound. I just use eight to 10 pound braid on my spinning gear. And I'd use maybe two feet of some fluorocarbon leader, probably something in the 12 to 15 pound range. And then I'd use that offset wide gap worm hook and a six inch Sanko. And that would be my go-to um, in the challenging conditions. And just to have fun and catch high numbers, I'll tell you what, nothing beats the Ned rig. And if you haven't fished with a Ned rig, that is another one of my absolute favorites. Z-Man's TRD, it's about two and three quarter inches. I fish it on a one tenth ounce jig head in most situations, depending on where I'm fishing in the current and the wind. Um, and that little Ned rig catches fish like crazy. And I'm not even talking about in freshwater it catches fish and the salty Ned will catch fish in salt water. I've caught tons of species on it. Even peacock bass will take it. And for someone who's going out there and just wants to have a ton of fun and catch numbers, it's a great way to do it. Um, again, I'm using light line in that case, cause finesse is kind of my jam. So I'm using Again, 10 to 12 pound leader and probably about eight pound braid and I'm using spinning gear in that instance too. So I would just say, start with the Senko, start with the Ned Rig. Um, one of my other favorite go-tos is TTI Blakemore Swim and Runner. It was made popular by Randy Howell and I can't say enough about that Swim and Runner. It is a underspin jig head. It's got a swim bait body. And that thing right now, I'm telling you what, the bluegill are, are spawning and largemouth are hanging around the bluegill beds. And you take that bluegill pattern swim and runner and you kind of bump it off the bottom or just steady retrieve it back a little bit slower this time of year because the fish are a little bit more lethargic in the heat. And that thing will catch fish like crazy. So that's just a few of my, my tips and favorites. So I'd say get that Sanko to recap, get yourself a Ned Rig get yourself a swim and runner. And those are, those are definitely my go-tos and will do you serve you very well in terms of catching bass in this area. That's fantastic. I am a big fan of the TTI Blakemore head jig heads, the road runner. I think what Ron Stallings is doing over at TTI Blackmore is fantastic. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big fan of those jig heads. Absolutely. So you do a lot of fly fishing also for bass. What's your, what's your fly pattern for Florida bass then? Oh my goodness. So I would say during the early morning hours, this time of year, you get out there early, right before the sun comes up and you fish until about nine, nine 30. I love again, top water. I mean, seeing a big bass come up and take top water, there's nothing more exciting. So I'm using top water poppers, anything from a size four up to like a size two. I don't use anything too crazy big because I feel like the big fish definitely in the early morning hours, they get braver and you don't always need to have a, a big presentation, especially when you're fishing in more extreme conditions, the extreme heat of summer or in the winter, I always downsize it a little bit. Um, but the other thing, you know, there's 
there's different frog patterns, deer hair frog patterns that are phenomenal. Um, I love fishing some of the streamer patterns and the muddler minnow patterns too, and like olive colors, depending on the water clarity. I tend to gravitate to more natural colors and clear water conditions. So I'll use a lot of the olives or the browns and clear water conditions. And then when the water starts to get murky, especially if we had a lot of rain or wind, I use a lot of those bright chartreuse fire tiger colors and things that have a little bit more flash. Um, but yeah, so I would say I love, um, I mean, the good old Clouser minnow, the Clouser deep minnow and chartreuse and, and white is a great pattern for bass the topwater poppers and, and yeah, I'd have to say probably like an olive and, and brown or an olive and tan muddler minnow variation would be my go-tos for sure for bass on fly. Excellent. I'm going to be tying some of those this week and trying them out then. So nice. toward in, in heading into a wrap up here, um, there are, there are a lot of fantastic pictures of you and your clients out there on the internet, but there's this one picture of you that I got to ask about. It's a fantastic picture of you holding this incredible snakehead. Tell me the story behind that picture. I mean, that is a big snakehead. The photography is fantastic. The colors are just bursting off of that, that image. Tell me about that fish, about that snakehead. I, I'm sure you know which picture I'm talking about. It was a relatively recent one, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes. Yeah. So I have to give credit to a good friend of mine, Crazy Alberto Nee who is just a phenomenal fishing mentor, a great friend. And he, I have been wanting to chase snakeheads more often living here on the West coast. I don't really get an opportunity to do it very often. They're mostly on the East coast. So he took me out on the water once things slowed down, down from a guiding perspective and got me out there fishing topwater frogs for those snakeheads. And we just had an absolute blast. But I do have to say that it was crazy because if you've snakehead fished before, you know, snakeheads have some serious teeth. And we were fishing just these soft plastic frogs. And I had two really major blow ups. And I reeled my line back picked up the frog, looked at it, and the frog was completely missing its both hind legs. And it was like a razor blade seared off those hind legs. So, I mean, just snakeheads are so aggressive. And given the fact that I love topwater fishing as much as I do, it was super just just so nice and awesome of my friend Alberto to take me out there and introduce myself and also um, a young lady that I'm working with and mentoring, Gabrielle McGrath, he took both of us out that day. So it was a really special day because Gabrielle and I both got on snakeheads. We've got them on top water and it was just a great day shared amongst friends and a, and a really phenomenal learning opportunity for me because like I said, I don't get to fish for them very often. And, and just seeing the power of those fish and just the, uh, the strength and the way that they just explode out of the water. It's just, just phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. And more people need to go out there and chase them because there's definitely the opportunities to do that. And I know some people have feelings about the fact they are invasive, but, uh, they're, they're there on the East coast. The opportunity presents itself. You might as well get out and take advantage of it. Well, so, it, it yeah. is a, 
that was a fantastic fish in that picture. And I just had to, had to know more about that fish. So yeah, great. great. It was such a great memory, but I, I do have to be honest. It was a little sketched me out, like putting my hands by that thing's mouth, because when you're used to fishing for bass and peacock bass, and you just use that thumb and finger grip, definitely not something you want to do with a snakehead. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Warning clients do not grab the snakehead. Exactly. Hands, right? Exactly. This has been fantastic. And I, I really appreciate you being here. But before we wrap it up, I do want to ask you our traditional final question. Given your career as an angler and an angler educator and given the remarkable places that you've been able to fish beyond just Southwest Florida, places like Australia, New Zealand, Africa, what's your grail fish? What's the one fish that's still out there on your bucket list that's just calling you for you? The one fish you really want to target and get? Oh my gosh. Oh, I have to say probably, and I'm going to go with, I, I've got two. It's a tie. I've got, I'm going to say Wahoo is one of them because I was out fishing with a good friend of mine, Captain Alex Stolinski a couple of years ago in the Keys. And I had one all the way up to the boat and he went to gaff it and the leader broke the, the teeth just wore through the leader and we ended up losing that fish so it's kind of been like a quest of mine to get retribution so I, I must say wahoo and and man just seeing that fish in the water and those like the purples and the blues on that fish so beautiful so that's one of them. And then I'm going to say African Pompano too, because I've been out deep sea fishing a bunch of times and, uh, I, the, the African Pompano has eluded me as well, but they just look like such beautiful and unique fish, like a mirror, just that beautiful silvery color and offshore isn't something I get to do very often at all. I mean, I've been really fortunate to have had the opportunity to get out with George a couple of times, and I'm so grateful for those experiences because he's just an amazing, an amazing angler and someone you can always learn from. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I love learning. And so I'd love to, to get out there and, and target African Pompano too, and learn more about that species. So Thought about it. getting either of the, either the who or the Pompano on fly? Oh, yeah, you know, I figure let's go with the uh, the traditional method right. first, <laughs> and then and then we can up the ante. But yeah, I'm I'm always up for a challenge, so I'd never say never. Oh, those are great grail fish to have. Thank you so much, Captain Debbie Hansen, for uh, being on the broadcast today. This has been so interesting and so informative. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today, but I think more so I want to thank you for what you do for angler education, for what you do to bringing more women and more children into this incredible recreation. And I really deeply appreciate all of that work, but thanks so much for being on the broadcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Sid. And likewise, thank you for all the education that you do and all the great articles that you write for publications such as Saltwater Sportsman. I learn something all the time when I read your articles. So thank you for being a fantastic educator as well. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Okily dokily, my listening crew, I think it's time for a break, a bourbon break. 
a moment in the rodcast where we put the rod in a rod holder, loosen the drag a bit, and take a few sips of our favorite whiskey to give pause and thought to all the other rods we could have and all the other whiskeys we could be drinking. I am a firm believer in self-care, and I think there's no better self-care than caring for your rods and letting good whiskey do its stuff on your mental well-being. That also means, of course, that every time you meet a surly or mean drunk, just remember that it's all part of their self-care, so let them be. Now, as a whiskey self-care guru, it has become inevitable that often when I am engaged in my therapeutic work, someone will inevitably ask me if I've ever tried this whiskey or that whiskey, which can be great because I get introduced to a lot of bourbons and other whiskeys I might not have otherwise known about. Such is the case with today's bourbon break, because today... I'm going to get to meditating over a bottle of Wyoming Whiskey Small Batch Bourbon Whiskey, a whiskey that was specifically recommended by one of you, one of the listening crew. Thanks for that recommendation. Now, Wyoming Whiskey is distilled and bottled in Kirby, Wyoming, and the company is proud to talk about the fact that they are not outsourcing. This includes the fact that Wyoming Whiskey sources their grains through their partners Brent and Sherry Raggeth in Byron, Wyoming, and that they use select strands of non-GMO corn, winter wheat, barley, and winter rye for specific starch and sugar yields. Wyoming Whiskey claims to be the first legal whiskey distillery in Wyoming, but that claim is tempered by a little bit by the fact that they were founded in 2009 by Brad and Kate Mead, along with David DeFaggio, and they got a little help from Steve Nally, whose name you might know because he used to be the master distiller over at Maker's Mark. So Wyoming Whiskey as a company is proud to boast their local Wyoming heritage, but we need to acknowledge, too, that Wyoming Whiskey is owned in part by Edrington Spirits, a privately owned spirit company from Glasgow, Scotland. They produce a bunch of Scotch whiskeys like the Macallan, Highland Park, the famous Grouse. They also produce Nobel Oak Bourbon and Bruegel, one of the best-selling rums in the Caribbean. Now, the Wyoming Whiskey is an 88-proof whiskey, so not a high-alcohol spirit. Interestingly, though, that choice to be an 88-proof whiskey is actually an homage to the fact that Wyoming was the 44th state. So Wyoming whiskey is 44% alcohol. I kind of like that they did that. That's kind of cool. I should say, too, that there's a story out there about Wyoming whiskey that when they released their first batch of bottles, not many folks took to it. In fact, it reviewed rather poorly. So the story goes that the owners of the company tried to buy back all of the bottles from that first batch. Now, as to the whiskey itself, it's got a mash bill of 68% corn, 20% wheat, and 12% malt barley. So it carries a lot of wheat-heavy bourbon qualities. It's aged for a minimum of five years in Wyoming whiskey's rickhouses. The eye of the Wyoming whiskey is golden, like a yellowish honey. The bottle shape echoes to what we might anticipate an old-timey bottle to look like with a heavy base and plenty of curves in the shoulder and the neck. Wyoming whiskey, and yeah, I gotta say, that alliteration might start to wear out in a review like this when I have to say Wyoming whiskey over and over again, Wyoming whiskey, Wyoming whiskey, Wyoming whiskey. So let's adapt, and I'll say that the nose of the WW is rather sweet. There are florals here, along with sweet fruits like cherries, raisins, and apples, maybe a twinge of cinnamon, certainly some caramel. That is, this is a sweet nose. That sweet comes over to the palate, too, as the WW opens sweet with that fruit dominating along with some brown sugar. 
And despite being a 44% alcohol whiskey, the spice is a bit more evident than one might expect with a low-proof whiskey like this. That spice seems to show up in tones of black pepper. It is, though, certainly a light whiskey on the palate. That lightness, though, confuses me a bit, too, because there's also a bit of what I think of as a heavier, yeasty kind of taste here that seems sort of inconsistent with the lightness of the whiskey. The finish of the WW reveals that the heat of the whiskey is a bit more than expected and certainly more than was evident in the primary palate. The finish also hints at the oak barrels of the whiskey, but not too much. The finish also seems pretty quick. There's no linger or memory here. I think that the WW finish, in fact, is indicative of my overall thoughts about the Wyoming whiskey small batch bourbon whiskey, and that is that it's a kind of mundane whiskey, nothing that lends to memory. There's nothing wrong with it. It might even make a suitable mainstay, except for the fact that it's a bit too pricey to be a daily driver. It's about 50 bucks a bottle, and I've seen it as high as 70 or as low as 45 it's just not going to earn that front row easy access well within reach have your morning coffee position on the shelf. Yeah, the bottle looks good on the shelf, but the whiskey itself just doesn't get me excited about reaching for it very often. And that's all I have to say about that. So those are my thoughts about Wyoming whiskey, small batch bourbon whiskey. And before we get back to the Rodcast, and as a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a shout-out to the Sandbar in Lawrence, Kansas. There is absolutely nothing classy about the Sandbar, but for the two years I lived in Lawrence, the Sandbar gave me nights of a Key West atmosphere and a landlocked Lawrence, and for that I say thank you. And like they say, a rich man lives in a castle, a poor man lives by the sea, but a whiskey glass and a sweet girl's kiss are home sweet home to me. As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. And now that's that. Back to the cast. All right. It is time for this week's top 10. And this week, I want to count down my top 10 hard body lures for tarpon. Now, I have to say at the outset that fishing for tarpon with hard body lures is not my favorite way to target tarpon. I find that I miss a lot more hookups when fishing hard bodies for tarpon, and I suppose that I explain that to myself not as something I'm doing wrong, but as a result of the hard bait interacting with the tarpon's bony plated mouth, making it more difficult for the tarpon to get a solid bite on the hard body lures. That's not to say, though, that fishing with hard baits is completely ineffectual. In fact, quite the opposite. Because of the quality of some of the great lures that are out there, there are a lot of hard lures that do just great on tarpon. And the ones on my list this week are the ones that I've had the most success with. Now, this list was inspired by an article I wrote for Florida Sportsman back in April of 2019, and in that article, I really focused on soft-bodied lures for tarpon, and in a past top 10, I counted down my top 10 soft-bodied tarpon lures, but here I want to focus on hard-bodied lures for uh, tarpon. Now, 
A lot of accomplished tarpon anglers often conflate hard bodies and soft bodies to single conversations about lures. However, there's some distinctions between the two that affect the lure presentation and fish response. And since I've already covered the soft bodies, I want to take a look at the top hard bodies for tarpon. So let's get going. At number 10, I'm going to open with a lure that I've talked about in several other top 10s for all kinds of inshore application, and that's Bagley's finger mullet. Now, as I've said in a few other top 10s, I fell in love with Bagley's finger mullet more than 25 years ago, and now the company has upgraded the mullet into an even more effective lure that I love and love it even more than the old one. Now, the old model was made of balsa wood, but it, with the reimagined version is a hard plastic body that is much more durable. There are nine color options, and it's available in two sizes. Oh, and if you want to learn more about the Bagley's Rattlin' Finger Mullet, be sure to check out my review of these lures over at the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. Review's got some interesting stuff about the history of Bagley lures as well. Now, keep in mind that Bagley's makes both a topwater version of the Rattlin' Finger Mullet and a sinking model. Both are great, and I like both for targeting tarpon. As always, I'm a fan of their classic redhead, but I have to say that the silver mullet, the natural mullet, and the copper mullet all work great for silver kings. Okay, at number nine, I want to nod to Savage Gear's Twitch Reaper. This is another great design lure by Mads Grossel over at Savage, and I love the profile of this lure. And like other Savage Gear lures, this design is a great lifelike bait fish mimic. Visually, the bait looks great. The eyes on this lure are specifically realistic. It's available in seven colors, and while the chrome sardine and peanut bunker just call to tarpon, I have to admit that it's the chartreuse that I like the best. The lure is three and a half inches long, weighing in at five-eighths of an ounce, and it comes in a slow-suspending model and a topwater model. I like both of them for tarpon. I really like the through-line construction and the holographic superglow finish, but I think what I like best about this lure is the rattle it makes with its extra-large internal rattle chamber. Okay, at numero eight, let me acknowledge the fantastic lure by Live Target in their scaled sardine twitch bait. There are two sizes of this lure, by the way, a three inch and a three and a half inch, and both are great tarpon baits. Aside from the beautiful design of this lure, the scaled sardine twitch bait's most telling feature is its erratic retrieve. This bait mimics a panic or wounded bait fish better than most I've ever worked with. Retrieve, stop, retrieve, and then get aggressive on the retrieve, and this lure just panics in the water, triggering the bite. It comes in four color options. All are great for any inshore target species, but particularly tarpon. The one drawback for this lure is the price point, but these days, that's the drawback on so much of our tackle. I think the $15 a lure price is a bit steep, but it's still a lure worth having in your box and worth throwing at tarpon. Okay, at Super 7, I've got Sibyl's Magic Swimmer Fast Sinking 145. Now, we have to admit up front that Patrick Sibyl is one of the premier lure designers out there and that the Magic Swimmer just adds to his reputation as really understanding what a lure needs to do. The Sibyl Magic Swimmer has picked up a lot of traction with tournament anglers because of its reliability. The action of this lure is fantastic, really realistic. The body is jointed in three parts, which create a natural free swimming motion. It's also got a unique sound chamber that, unlike a lot of loud lures that chatter, this admits a kind of discreet chatter. This lure casts really well and works at varying depths. Superior balance allows for excellent casting and a steady retrieve at variety of depths. 
it's a fast sinking lure, but a faster retrieve, it can be kept at a higher, a higher point in the water column. It comes in a dozen color options, but check out the silver mullet for tarpon. Okay, at number six, let's go with that tried and true, always reliable in so many scenarios, the Rapala X-Rap Twitching Mullet. Now, I'll say from the start here that one of the things I love about the Rapala X-Rap Twitching Mullet is that it comes pre-rigged with VMC Coastal Black 1X inline single hooks rather than treble hooks like most of the lures in this list. Now, I recognize that by having these single hooks on a hard bait rather than treble hooks, it makes it even harder to hook up with a tarpon. But I think when you do hook up with these hooks, you get a stronger hold than a lot of the other lures that are out there. The X-Wrap Twitching Mullet comes in two sizes, a two and a half inch and a three and one eighth inch, and both are applicable for tarpon. I like the action on this lure. It's like a wide pattern subsurface walk the dog, and on a slower retrieve, the lure swims in these big arching S patterns. It comes in 17 really dynamic colors, and of course, I have not tried them all for tarpon, but I do like the mullet pattern, the mangrove minnow pattern, and the pilchard pattern. Okay, at the midway point, at number five, I'm going to go with another classic lure, Bombers Badonkadonk. It's a great casting topwater that really is at its best in calm water, but its rattle components and the attraction, uh, add to an attraction that's viable in darker waters or choppier waters as well. Comes in two sizes, a three and a half inch half ounce version and a four inch three quarter ounce version, and they're nine color variations. But I'm a traditionalist and I usually pick the redhead flash. One of the things that gives me a lot of trust in the Badonkadonk is the hardware on this lure. The heavy-duty saltwater-grade hooks and hardware give me confidence that, that the Badonkadonk can handle the power of a tarpon's mouth. They come in two sizes, like I said, three and a half inch, four inch, and you just got to love the Badonkadonk. At number four, let's go with Yozuri's 3D Inshore Minnow. But let me clarify, too, that when I think about the 3D Inshore Minnow, I'm really thinking about applications for smaller tarpon, not the big monsters. That said, the 3D Minnow is a fantastic all-around inshore lure, but I find it very useful for tarpon. This is a floating lure, but the lip on the lure does a great job of pulling it subsurface. In fact, you want to be attentive to which model you buy because Yozuri makes three different models that dive to different depths depending on the model. One runs down to one, and a, one to two feet and has an exceptionally tight wiggle. Another one runs to two to three feet, but its wiggle, while still tight, is a bit wider than the one that runs to one to two feet. And then there's a model that runs two to four feet, again with a tight wiggle, but looser than the shallow running model. They come in 13 color patterns, and I'd be pressed to pick a specific color from this palette to recommend over another, so just grab one and go. At number three, I want to point to yet another classic lure, Mirror Lures Series 3 Suspending Twitch Bait. Now, like all Mirror Lures, the Series 3 Suspending Twitch Bait has, has really hardy hardware and a fantastic action. But what I like most about this lure is how it hangs, how it suspends about 10 to 16 inches below the surface, right in that subsurface region where tarpon cruise. The Series 3 has great internal rattles for creating sound, and they have those famous mirror-eye, fiery red eyes. This is a lure that was designed for tarpon, and it lives up to that design. Okay, in the runner-up position, I am in love with the Nomad Mascad. Now, I want to be clear. There are six models of the Nomad Mascad, ranging in size from a 2.5-inch up to a 3-and-3-quarter three three size. 
Some of these are suspending lures, some are slow sinking, and one sinking model. I like all these, but what I've started doing when buying the Mascat is to buy the models of the slow sinking that come pre-rigged with the BKK Diablo 5x single hooks rather than the ones with the BKK 1x treble hooks. I like fishing with single hooks for tarpon more than I do fishing with trebles. Likewise, one of the things I like about the Mascad is that they really are great for distance casting. And let's face it, when targeting tarpon, more often than not, you need the extra distance in that cast. So that's why I've got the Mascad in the number two position. Okay, so those are my top nine hard body lures for targeting tarpon. But what, you ask, is my number one hard body tarpon lure? Well, my listening crew, the answer might just surprise you a little bit. And that answer is coming up right after a quick trip down memory lane to recap the top nine. At number 10, we've got Bagley's Finger Mullet. At nine, Savage Gears Twitch Reaper. At eight, Live Target Scaled Sardine. At seven, Sabil's Magic Swimmer Fast Sinking Model. At six, Rappala's X-Rap Twitching Mullet. At five, Bomber's Badonkadonk. At four, Yuzuri's 3D Inshore Minnow. At three, Marilure's Series 3 Suspending Twitch Bait. At number two in the runner-up position, the Nomad Mascad. Okay, so my number one hard-body tarpon lure is a newer lure, one just introduced this year. So you may not yet be familiar with it, or you may not have had the chance to fish it for tarpon. But trust me when I say that it's a great lure for many inshore applications and is just great with tarpon. I'm talking about Berkeley's new Juke Saltwater. Like a lot of other lures in this list, there are two sizes for the Juke, an 85 millimeter, about three and three, about three and a third inch, and a hundred millimeter version, which is just under four inches. Now, unlike a lot of the other lures that I've looked at in this list that remain on the surface or just below the surface, the Juke actually runs a bit deeper in the three to six foot depth range. It's got great erratic darting action and great rattling sounds. It comes in 14 colors. It really is one of the most exciting lures to hit the market in a long time. So there you have it, the Fishing Professor's Top 10 Hard Body Lures for Tarpon. And yes, I know you have your disagreements with my list, so feel free to email me, especially if you think there's a hard body lure that I've overlooked in my considerations of hard bodies for tarpon. You can always email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a Fishing Professor's Top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just shoot me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And that wraps up this week's Fishing Professor Top 10 list. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. I want to thank Captain Debbie Hansen for that great conversation. I do hope you found my thoughts about Wyoming Whiskey Straight Bourbon to be useful, and I hope my countdown of my top 10 hard bodies for tarpon gave you some insight about what lures you want to have on hand when the Silver Kings are rolling. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The fish are deep. I say again, the fish are deep. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you and all of the members of my listening crew will spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific re fishing-related issues, 
please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over at the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a whole bunch of other great content. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!